This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, as always, Tyler Burns. Jamar Tisby's on the line as well. Jamar, how you doing? Excited about what we're going to discuss today, man. It's on it's people's gonna minds. It's going to be an interesting podcast, right? So this is the first time in a little bit we haven't had an interviewewee. So what's new in your life? I mean, since we have a chance, we just kicking back. In this Ooh, a brother, uh, work is cursed. <laughs> it is <laughs> under the curse. However, God, God is still on the throne and he's redeeming it. No, it's just hard, man. Like there, it's a difficult line to, to, to walk, to say that all work is redeeming. All work is God's work. If it's done to his glory. And yet at the same time, there are places, there are things you can do that are really, really hard and in some ways much harder than than other things. So there are some things I've done in my life that are challenging, uh, enriching. I've loved to do it. They've stretched me and personally and professionally. But working with low income kids in a public school setting is it it takes the cake. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not a game. It's that not sounds a like game. a consistent pull and and very rewarding, but at the same time, very demanding, very draining. Um, and also something that kind of presses in on your soul, kind of stirs your heart a bit. And- Extremely personal. Yeah. And, and, you know, it gets to some of the stuff we're going to talk about today because it's never just one thing. It's this web. It's this network of, of you know, injustices and ills in society that are colluding to work against all the good you're trying to do. And it goes way beyond Like the kids are the bright spot of it all. Um, so it goes way beyond just the classroom or particular kids. It's, it's much more of a systemic kind of, this is the state of America type of thing. So wow. challenging, but you know, like you said, rewarding. What's, you what's, are the man for the job though. You are the man for the job, Jamar. Hey, I'm a clay vessel. What about you? What's going on with you? Man. Um, same thing, actually, just uh, working and learning new things. I think as you, you know, one of the things about getting older is you starting to unravel, pulling on certain threads that you kind of avoided as a young man or a younger man and avoided in college. or And so you're starting to see parts of yourself that can continually be sanctified and continually be laid down at the altar and saying, Lord, take this and and, you know, smooth this edge out. And uh, I think over the past few weeks, we've been working um, just as a family and doing that and as a church community and ensuring that that is a, a consistent theme that we're constantly kind of pressing those edges out um, and not just in my life and others. So it's been a it's been a, a, a revealing time for me. And I think as, as I get closer to 30, I'm starting to see certain things that I didn't see before. So kind of kind of being introspective. Yeah, that work of sanctification is hard. It is, man. It never stops, too. That's what they tell me. <laughs> so, so speaking of sanctification, <laughs> terrible segue, um, into 
what we're going to talk about today, which is artistic activism. And in two particular cases, we're going to talk about something that most people have seen, and that's performances by two separate artists who both happen to be black and kind of talking about this web of, of and the history of, of what it means to to be an artistic activist, an artist who has a message. Um, the first high-profile case is obviously Beyonce in the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Now, she kind of basically took over the halftime show. <laughs> that was wrong what they did. Who, who, was the, who was the main headliner they had? It was Coldplay, yeah. and I'm a Coldplay fan. Yeah. Um, I, I did Coldplay a lot kind of their older stuff more than their newer stuff. But Beyonce and Bruno Mars just basically came in and took over. Uh, yeah. They basically kicked Coldplay to the curb. They kind of made them the appetizer. Um, and then we just kind of all sang together, we are the world and, you know, believe in love and all this other stuff. But Beyonce, before the Super Bowl, about 24 hours before the Super Bowl, she came out with a video called Formation, new song. And in a very expert marketing move, she came out with the video, dropped it unannounced, then performed it at the Super Bowl, and right after the performance announced her world tour. So it's basically like a build-a-tour, build-a-marketing, very capitalistic uh, move. And I I can't knock it. Like I'm not saying that as as a detriment. I think that's um, it was very wise. Why are you bringing up old stuff, man? What do you mean? This is weeks ago. Hey, I mean, hey, I, hey, listen, it was it was <laughs> it was wise, man. It was it was a good move, man. It was a good move. And and so she gets on there, she performs Formation, but Formation is a very loaded song, a loaded video, and her Super Bowl performance was also filled with messages and doubling down that I think maybe some people didn't catch at first or some mm-hmm. people kind of caught and didn't appreciate and mm-hmm. rejected. So what are your initial thoughts? And even before I get into that, are you a Beyonce fan? Like, have you have you appreciated her music? You yeah. know, what's kind of your overall take on her, you know, outside of just this one particular video? All right. I'm going to be transparent. And and OK, so I tweeted out maybe a day after the formation video came out. Um, they were talking about the halftime performance. And so I tweeted out a message like, if you still haven't seen the video, here's the link. And then somebody tweets me back is like, how can you promote this, you know, godless, uh, pornographic, you know, whatever, basically saying Beyonce is a bad influence. How can you as a Christian, and he even basically said that in the tweet, how can you as a Christian um, put this out there? So I already know on the front end, there are going to be people sort of rolling their eyes at this and whatnot. But speaking as particularly as an African-American, because of the messages she's trying to convey in that, I think it's a fascinating piece of art. I really mm. do. And and it's not for everyone. Okay, so early Beyonce stuff, Destiny's Child stuff, man, it's fun. It's pop music. As she's become her own thing, a diva, a beehive, all that stuff, she has used her sexuality. Um, she has gotten far 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 away from anything close to a wholesome message in a lot of her songs right but it's pop music you know it's catchy whatever so i don't go out and buy her albums um that's a relief to hear you know uh, i was concerned there for a second (laughs) no man when this video came out though i was like wow this is this is definitely something to talk about and pay attention to but no i mean 
not really a Beyonce fan. I don't. I'm not part of the Beehive. I don't know. Do you that's, get a card? That's good to know. <laughs> that is very good to know. You shouldn't be. And no grown men should be a part of the Beehive. But um, but you know, or Beehive. I don't know. Yeah, I don't which know. Way, whichever. I'm whichever too old. Way <laughs> Basically, I mean, I'm the same way. I stylistically, I've never really enjoyed Beyonce's music. Not because I hated it or because I felt like there was necessarily something wrong with it intrinsically, but it just isn't stylistically the type of music that I would listen to. You mean you um, didn't play, if you like it, put it, then you should have put a ring on it. Nah. You got engaged. Man. Come on. Nah. <laughs> nah. I was messing with you. That, yo, I like banned that. Like you are not allowed to play that at my wedding. Like that's why I told him like, you're not allowed to play that. You know how they have the little, uh, single ladies thing and they, they bring all the single ladies yep. out and they play that song. I was like, you are not allowed to do, that. do not do that. Um, but but also, I think from a observation standpoint of looking at who she represents and what she represents in the broader culture, I think some of the messages and some of the things that she's reinforced have been harmful to the public perception of black celebrity and black artistry and her being the most powerful, you know, one of the most powerful black women in entertainment, if not the most powerful maybe outside of Oprah or somebody like that, or Shonda Rhimes, like her, her portrayal, I think has sometimes led to, you know, misogynistic assumptions about black women and, sure. and such. And so do I think that she's, you know, some people have overstated that because I don't think she's necessarily the originator of that mentality. I think that mentality persisted long before Beyonce. And there were other performers who fed into that. But, you know, she's definitely not Whitney Houston, right? Mm. Um, she's definitely not, you know, just the, the, the vocalist. She is, uh, she's trying to be an entertainer. She's trying to be a performer. And I think some of those things have been unhelpful. And I think some people have overstated those things. But she's clearly someone who is trying to build a brand that draws attention to herself, um, to her husband, to her family, and in that, I can appreciate the art from a distance without necessarily saying, hey, I consume the art because it's just never really been what I would want to consume personally. So yeah, that's a good distinction. I think with formation, though, she makes a, a shift. So she makes a, a very noticeable shift into what we could say is black conscious art. So uh, a kind of embracing of, of, of overt blackness and overt social messaging that was different from some of the things that we've heard from her before. Um, and, and her performance kind of caught people off guard, I think, in the details of what she was saying. And, and, and so when you say it was powerful, what was powerful about it to you? Because I think a lot of people would disagree. Even some people, you know, on my timeline were, were talking to me about the fact that she is, you know, her, her messaging was racist, which I think we throw that word around very loosely. But they were saying her message was racist and it was racially charged. And so what about it to you, Jamar, was powerful? It was a celebration, I thought, of black culture and Beyonce's roots in particular. So in the video, she makes strong references and um, uh, uh, speaks about coming from Georgia and Louisiana in terms of her heritage. And so the 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 southern culture, the Creole culture and and uh, ethnicity behind in, in her family line. And then all the the references, both sort of 
popular and historical to black culture. So, you know, having hot sauce in your bag. So you always have this staple of Southern food of black culture with you, no matter where you go. Uh, uh, the settings where she was all very Southern scenes um, that, that conveyed the message that even though she is on top of the pop music game, she remembers where she came from and isn't ashamed of it, isn't hiding it, isn't apologizing for it. Now, that's again, this is like you said, appreciation without consuming every message in there. She makes some some sexual messages. Uh, it's a very, you know, revealing. She wears some very revealing clothing. All of that. I get that. I get that. But there's other messages in there, too. And I don't want to just chuck the whole uh, um, endeavor uh, without analyzing some of the other aspects too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when she stepped into the Super Bowl performance, then it kind of exploded on a mass level because she's wearing what appears to be an homage to the Black Panthers, but also to Michael Jackson as well, who had donned a similar outfit in a previous Super Bowl performance. And then she has you know these women around her who are dressed in afros and all black and this is in oakland and you know thinking about the symbolism there you know so so people kind of push back at the idea that she was giving an homage to a group of people who most would assume you know without proper historical study were a hate group and were you know uh, basically you know this the the black version of the clan Right. The Black Panthers. Right. What did you think when you saw her? Did you catch it when you were watching? If you watched the Super Bowl performance live, did you catch that she was kind of they were in formation in an X and they were, you know, holding their fist up? Did you catch all those references and homages to the Black Panthers or did you just think, hey, this is just art? Yeah, I was definitely there. Um, every piece of clothing, every choreographed dance move, every lyric she sang was intentional, and she knew what was behind it. And it was uh, a a nod, I think, to the Black Panthers. If it wasn't, <laughs> she did a very bad job of 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 avoiding that. But I think I think that was on purpose. And I also think that there are some aspects of of that group, at least in its inception, that we can understand and appreciate even if we don't agree with it. And so it was very interesting that that performance happened a few weeks ago, and then a few weeks later, there was the documentary on PBS Independent Lens about the Black Panther movement and how it came about. And and so much of the Black Panther movement was this transition from the historic civil rights movement, which we're celebrating during Black History Month, along with so many other achievements of black Americans. Um, but the historic civil rights movement, roughly 1954, 55, to 68 or so, depending on, on, on where you want to stop it. But there's a transition between, you know, the, the public marches and, and the Martin Luther Kings. And then what you what you see next is the black power movement. And, and that arises because all this nonviolent stuff doesn't seem to be working, even when the laws changed 64, 65, 68. Even when these big federal laws were passed, it, it, it actually had this sort of unintended consequence of saying, okay, we've achieved this great victory toward which we were working, but nothing much has changed. 
we're still in this marginalized second class citizen status. So that combined with the fact that there was still violence being perpetuated against blacks, that there were still, you know, these injustices in the criminal justice system that were disproportionately affecting blacks. Then you have folks saying, look, enough with all this, you know, just turn the other yeah, cheek stuff, you know, let's and- do something. Let's assert our and, and part of black power. Black power was not originally about overthrowing the white system is really about creating a separate system. Now that came in, that stuff came in later and there were always strains of it, but that's true of every movement that, that oh. has a radical element. So, okay. So let's get to this. Cause I want to get back to, to the black Panther documentary in a second when we talk about the second performance, but why are people upset about this Beyonce performance? Like why? I guess I'm, still trying to understand and get the reasoning, the explicit reasoning why they're upset at this. You know, some people have said, and I think we should address the anti-police element that people assume or have accused the performance of perpetuating. Um, why are people upset? I'm, I'm, I'm totally confused. I think when you actually read the lyrics and when you read what was being considered and what was being said, this really wasn't anti anyone that I can see. Um, <laughs> well, I, so why 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 the the uh, why the uproar and the outrage and the help me understand? <laughs> I don't know if I understand, but here's my hypothesis. I think there's a surface level reason. I think there's a deeper reason. I think on the surface level, it's a misunderstanding of what the Black Power movement in general and Black Panthers specifically were about and what they were advocating. And I think it's very easy with any historical movement to look back and look at the extremes, look at the radicals and not look at the broad middle that really represented the movement. And so I think there's a reaction to the sort of popular culture memory of the Black Panthers as this militant militant group that was about violence and, and all of these kinds of things. Well, it's a much more nuanced picture if you look at the history. And I'd say that documentary is a good place to start. I think that's the surface reason. I think the deeper reason, and uh, our producer Bo reminded me of this, there was a skit done by Saturday Night Live about the formation video that was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Well, it was hilarious and it was so right. The reason why it was so funny was because there's so much truth in it. And it was basically saying that this formation video wasn't made for white people in the sense that it wasn't made just to appeal to the majority dominant cultures, sensibilities, um, cultural artifacts, those kinds of things. In other words, it spoke to and was meant to speak to primarily a minority, in this case, a black audience. And so in the video, in the SNL skit, they're like, wait a minute, Beyonce's black? <laughs> and they just had no idea because so much of her other music was such a, a you know, a pop popular culture type thing anybody could appreciate but now as you say you know artistic activism and she's speaking out about these issues and concerns pertinent to the african-american community the video is like white people freaking out because all of a sudden beyonce's not black um and it's not for us and so i think at, at a deeper level um folks in the majority white folks are, are looking at this and like this is anti-white 
it's not anti-white. <laughs> there is it. Yeah, it seems that there is in in popular culture and in mass in our country, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of blackness and black culture. Like it is, it is totally misunderstood. Like what it is, what it should be. And I'm not just talking about by quote unquote white people. I'm talking about by really everybody. You know, we don't even even within the African-American community, there's a lot of debate and discussion and confusion about what is true blackness. Like Torrey talks about this in uh, his book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, where, you know, he talks about how he was at a place not too far from where I live and he was going skydiving. And he ran into a couple of guys who noticed him and they were black. And he told him that he was going skydiving and they were like, man, you know, black people don't do that. And he was like, what do black people actually do? Like, what does that mean? You know, um, even today, just for a recent piece of news, Ben Carson comes out and says, yeah. you know, President Obama was raised white. You know, what does that mean? Which you is know? hilarious coming from Ben Carson. Well, yeah, and I and I want to touch on that, you know, at another time because I really want to dissect why he said that. Um, blog coming, hint, hint. Um, but I think, you know, the concept of something being black and something being white is is a total misunderstanding of humanity and personhood and the imago dei and and the fact that no culture like owns something, you know, but but certain things are representations of cultures, but we shouldn't put people into boxes and these ideas that, oh, well, if you're black, you can't do this. Or if you're if you're white, you can't understand this. And I think that that furthers divides. And, and I think it's a misunderstanding fundamentally that leads to outrage like this. Like when Beyonce says, um, I like my Negro's nose with Jackson five nostrils, right? Like people are like, oh, well, that's, they said, she said Negro a whole bunch. And so that's racist. And it's like, okay, no. Um, what is she saying? Well, she's saying, obviously, over time, it's actually a, a, a double entendre, right? So over time, Michael Jackson changed his nose, right? And so earlier it was, it was more full and rounder. And then he got a surgery when he became, you know, when he was battling with skin disease, he got a surgery that narrowed it out. Well, she, she's married to a man who is made fun of for his very large nose, which is also a trope that was used to mock black people for centuries. Like this idea that our facial features are wrong and they're robust and they're animalistic. And, and, and so it was used in, in cartoons and it was used in magazines and it was used in newspapers to portray this animalistic sense of what blackness is. So she's saying, no, I like, I like your nose. Like I like my, my, my daughter's That's hair. It. That's it. You know, I like that stuff. Now, what what I think would have been a better representation for her, if I can offer a critique, is that she should have come out in the afro. Like if you're that serious, yeah, if you're about real. it like that, then come <laughs> you come out and represent it, right? It was because interesting. You're, you're also you're pointing at other people and you're saying, "Oh well, yeah, I like this on you." Well, why don't you come out in it? You know, which would have been a brilliantly subversive thing, but you know, which I think is is the the thin line between. You know, Beyonce and some of the other quote unquote artistic activists is she's still very concerned with capitalism. Man, she's I mean, still very concerned with her brand. And if the Black Panthers were still in mass today, if they were still around as they were, the original founders would not have supported that. Like, you know, Bobby Seale would not like, you know, Bobby Seale would not say, yo, 
he 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 knocks capitalism like he, right. he wouldn't say that you know that's a sign of empowerment like what did she say the the best revenge is your paper the best right. revenge is getting money yeah. you say no that's not the best revenge right okay i see what you're saying yeah 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 I, I, uh, obviously i don't know what they would say but but you're right they they were much more the original founders and leaders were much more about community empowerment and not just making all this money to better yourself and even maybe right. a few of your friends. So yeah, I get that. I get that. But it's so interesting. I'm not sure how deep we can go on this show, but but Beyonce herself and her brand and what it symbolizes, especially doing this video and this performance at the Super Bowl raises some some very interesting questions because uh you know, within the black community, there's all of this sort of tension around lighter skinned black people and darker skinned black people. Beyonce right. is a lighter skinned black woman. There's all this tension about hair and, and how you can wear is it, it natural extensions, straightened, whatever straight, it might be. Yeah. And so Beyonce has these blonde locks, straight, you know, wavy maybe that come down to her waist, you know, but clearly not her own natural hairstyle. Right. And so even what she represents in terms of a of a cultural icon is very far removed from a lot of the black is beautiful kind of messages that the black power movement tried to promote. And so even I think what you're saying is 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 valid because even her own self-representation in the midst of this messaging sends mixed messages. Actually, it could, you know, and that's, and that's the thing. Like she is not above critique. Like, I think, I think we should make that a consistent theme. Like Beyonce does do things that are, you know, what we would consider very outside the pale and not a good representation, but that doesn't mean that all of what she does has to be discarded. And it should be a symbol to us, to all of us to be careful. All art is not for us, right? Like, we kind of live in this American individualistic mentality that says every piece of art should speak to me equally. You know, every piece it should. So, so I'm offended at this. Well, it wasn't necessarily for you. Well, I'm still offended at this because it was, you know, it was this or that or, or, or the other. And I'm, I'm just, you know, if we're going to take the other extreme, like I don't critique like rock culture because I don't understand it, you know, as well as I understand hip hop culture. Right. So I don't hop in, and make value judgments and character judgments mm. on people, you know, mm. because of uh, they're they're speaking to an audience that clearly understands some things that I'm not familiar with. So I need to be careful about the critique that I lobby against them. Not to say that they're above critique, and not to say you can't critique hip hop or whatever, but we need to be careful of truly investigating what it is we're we're critiquing. Yeah, you know. Yeah. That was that was I think my biggest problem wasn't that people didn't like Beyonce or didn't like the performance. That's who cares. But when they were saying, "Oh, this is a racist. This is anti-police. This is," and it's like, "What well, did you actually read the lyrics? Right? You know, did you actually read the content of what she said in you know the Super Bowl performance and try to? I mean, hey, there's there's rap genius. There's other places where you can go and get a breakdown of of kind of from her perspective what she was saying, and that doesn't mean that you'll like it or accept it. But, you but understand you'll at least it be informed, yeah, and understand it. So I, I, that's a great point. It, it goes back to what uh, Vincent Bacot was saying on a previous podcast about the Wheaton controversy. Go ahead and 
download that and listen to it. Great because, episode. A great episode because what he was talking about in terms of understanding that controversy, especially from the outside looking in, was simply asking questions and and wondering honestly and openly, well, how do you arrive at that conclusion? And so can we approach uh, a video like Formation or that halftime performance at the Super Bowl and say, well, what what's leading her to to feel like she needs to make this expression in her art, in her music? Where, where is this coming from? And if there are so many people who seem to celebrate this, what is that about? What is that coming from? Yeah. And, and I think that attitude helps at least, like I said, appreciate it. You don't necessarily need to consume it, like you said. You don't necessarily need to agree with it. But but it is more infuriating, especially when it comes to topics about race, for people from the majority to automatically pass judgment without an honest attempt, an honest endeavor to understand where this might be coming from, even if it's not from the same place I would come from. Right. I can get it. I get it why it's important. Okay, now, uh, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we get to, to the second performance here, which is Kendrick Lamar's Grammy performance. Mm. Um, because it was very similar in the sense that it took a bold, overt stance. And so I kind of want to talk about these two things together at the end, if we can. Um, so Kendrick Lamar, who is obviously um, a rapper, won, I think it was five Grammys yeah. um, at the Grammy Awards, um, was nominated for Album of the Year, did not win, lost to Taylor Swift. Um, but the album was To Pimp a Butterfly, and it's kind of a jazz-infused interpretation of hip-hop and um, kind of anthems and black consciousness. And so he comes out and he performs three songs, two of which are on the album, one of which hasn't been released. And um, he comes out in chains, in like a, a prison scenario. Um, and this is at the Grammys. <laughs> I mean, this is on, on primetime television. He comes out and... And raps a few, uh, uh, raps a verse and I think a chorus from The Black of the Berry, where he kind of talks about, you know, black hypocrisy in some areas, um, which is a very controversial song. Then goes into a, a very, breaks out of his chains and goes into a very African setting with the fire and, and the furnace behind him and raps his, probably his most popular song to date, which is All Right, which is the anthem. Um, that many people have used in protests and activism and then, you know, ends, you know, everything kind of fades away and he, and he ends rapping, um, alone on the stage and everyone just universally lauded the performance as being passionate and an example and, um, and breathtaking. And so let me ask you, Jamar, we, we know how you feel about Beyonce. Are you familiar with Kendrick Lamar? What do you think about Kendrick? I I I I am familiar with Kendrick. I haven't done a deep dive into, you know, just like sitting down with his album and listening and absorbing uh the messages probably like you have, but he's a phenomenon in terms of not only his lyrical ability and his 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 talent as a rapper, but he's someone in contrast to maybe someone like Beyoncé who has come out the gate with a, a, a deeper message, you know, uh, right. sort of a artic, artistic activism from the start. And yet he's achieved popular success with the Grammy nods, with the, the multi-platinum albums. Uh, so that's rare. That combination is rare that you have someone who is using his art form and his talent to convey a deep message uh, about 
social ills as well as personal struggles who has achieved that level of popularity so quickly. So that in itself, and then with the Grammy performance, you, it just sort of solidified Kendrick Lamar's unique place in hip hop and the music industry right now. I'm not saying there's never been anyone like him before. There won't be anyone after him, but he's occupying a very distinctive place right now. And, and, and even at a Grammy performance where you think of a typical hip hop uh, uh, artist performing, it, it's not as um, it's, it's a lot of people on stage rapping. They got a whole posse around them, but there's not a not always a whole lot more it's going on. It's kind of awkward, on. right? It's yeah. Always, it's always really awkward. It's kind of like, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna rap and I'm going to do, you know, nobody understands what I'm saying, but I'm going to rap and, and you're going to rap along. You're just yeah. going to sit there and There's nod and smile. Uh-huh. And, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so this one, I would say the visual, the, there was a visual aspect to it that went along with the verbal aspect that made it extremely compelling and powerful. Not only that, he was just bold. I mean, he went there from change to Africa to what, to everywhere you know so it was yeah, designed to make an impact compton and he had one in africa he ended with like the city of compton where he's from which he always talks about in the country in the in the continent of africa God. so so hearing that like seeing that was like whoa like a, a powerful statement very in your face very direct well um, you're the hip-hop head i mean what did you think of that performance Okay, so um, I don't think anyone would be surprised to know I'm a Kendrick Lamar fan. Um, And the reason I would be a fan of Kendrick Lamar, um, it wouldn't be without critique. Uh, It would not be without criticism. But he curses. What'd you say? He curses. Yeah, like, and and to be honest, that's, you know, I actually had an interview with um, Christ and Pop Culture, our friends at Christ and Pop Culture, their hip hop podcast about Kendrick Lamar probably I want to say a year and a half ago. And one of the things I talked about that I had the biggest issue with is misogyny. And, you know, this this apparent ease with which Kendrick falls into the fatal flaw of hip hop, which is the demonization and degradation of women, you know, to to even refer to them, which I don't think Kendrick is nearly as bad as most rappers are in this area. But but using the B word, using sexually explicit lyrics and language. And it makes some of what he raps and some of what, you know, he puts out very hard to listen to and very difficult. Now, the thing, the reason I like Kendrick, though, is because Kendrick has, is saying a lot of things in one place and they're very multi-layered. Um, so Kendrick wrestles openly with, with sin and evil. He wrestles with iniquity. Um, he laments um, sort of the emptiness of the pleasures of this world. Um, he talks explicitly about giving his life to the Lord and what that looked like for him and and how he's wrestling with that. And I think to to have the greatest rapper currently wrestling with that, you know, even even having conversations and he's friends with Lecrae, you know, who we would know from from a Christian hip hop vein or, or, or artist who's Christian, so to speak wrestling with that and him kind of pouring into him and giving him some ideas. You can tell the influence that Lamar has with the internal struggle of not glamorizing the street culture and life, but rather showing its emptiness, showing its ills, um, sort of like in, in, in sort of like a, a, a street lamentations type of way, yeah. you know, in the same way that, that Tupac was that in the nineties, Lamar is that in the new millennium. I like that. So, street lamentations. 
Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. Don't don't steal that. Just, <laughs> just came out, so I need to write that down. But um, but Kendrick, I think the reason why he's so fascinating is because not only is he incredibly talented and gifted, but he has this message of appreciating his culture, appreciating, his, and it's so consistent. Like it's it's. It's something that we've seen in every single one of his albums, in most of his songs. We see an appreciation for blackness, an appreciation for black culture. And, and I wanted to ask you, Jamar, like it puts me in an interesting spot because I enjoy that and I and I love that and I think that's healthy. But are we supposed to be black cultural focused? Is that everything? You know? And I think there's a discordance and a disequilibrium because I love the messages of, of black self-love, so to speak, right? And and the appreciation of blackness, because I think it, it reflects the personhood that God has given to us in his image in the Imago Dei. But I also recognize that in heaven, there will not just be black people. I mean, you know, spoiler alert, there will not just be black people, right? Like, I don't buy into the liberation theology concept that is just for the oppressed. Like it is for oppressors too. It's not just for people of color. It's for, for, for billions of white people as well, right? So how do we balance the, the, the self-love of where we come from and the heritage, but the kingdom of God aspect, which is constantly pushing us towards reconciliation and uniting and all these things that sometimes the black power movement and the black consciousness movement and the black self-love movement doesn't even care about? Important is not ultimate, um, and so for me, the way I'm trying to walk through this journey of navigating my own blackness and what that means to be black and male in America uh, and to try to recover the dignity of the Imago Dei in being a person of African descent, one of the things, the most important thing I try to keep in mind is that is an aspect of my identity, but it's not the ultimate identity that I have. The ultimate identity that I have is as a adopted son of God through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and being in the household of faith. And when Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters, it's those who do the will of my father. And so in a very real way, I am more closely united to the, you know, white South Carolinian who grew up in a racist household but is trying to understand better <laughs> the the issues and concerns of others. Right, I'm right. closer to him than I am the guy in my own town who shares my same skin color and maybe taste in music and fashion but does not believe in God. And that has to be true. That's why our congregations can be multi-ethnic and multicultural and diverse in every way, because what unites us is far stronger than what divides us, whether that's economically, culturally, socially, whatever it might be. At the same time, we can't even talk about you know, recovering the dignity of the image of God in black people without explaining a little bit of why that's such a big deal. Right. See, right. see, I think folks who are white in the majority look at that and say, well, that's racist. You're promoting your own color. You're promoting your own culture. And and, and then automatically all, all the time they say, well, if the white people did that, that would be called racist. So why can black people do it? Well, mm-hmm. it's because African-Americans 
people of darker skin color in this country have been historically, systematically, and presently uh, told in ways both explicit and implicit, both overt and covert, that to be black is to be lesser, is mm. to be other in some way. And so whether that's counting as, as three-fifths of a person, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of how they allocate voting, whether that is Jim Crow laws, uh, mm. whether that is um, the fact that Beyonce would have to say something about nose shapes and hair textures. All of those things are reactions to the fact that we have been taught from birth that we are black people living in white people's worlds. Mm. And so we have to fight tenaciously and consciously to say that just because I'm white doesn't mean I'm lesser. And as a matter of fact, God made me this way in this setting with this, you know, packaging, if you will, in terms of skin color. He did that on purpose. He didn't make a mistake. And it's beautiful. There's something gorgeous about that diversity, just the same as there's something gorgeous about other people and other ethnicities and other cultures. The point is when you haven't, when that ethnicity and culture has not been affirmed, in fact, it's been degraded systematically, then you Mm. have to take overt steps to remember and remind yourself, I am a man, as as the sign said during the civil rights movement. Yes. Yeah. Man, that's so good. I I think it's also a, a recognition of the fact that we live in a fallen world, right? The recognition that brokenness has extended to every area of our lives, including the way that we view each other. Um, You know, it's funny. Sometimes we forget total depravity. Sometimes we forget the idea that sin has creeped into every single area of our lives and it's skewed the way, it's broken the way in which we view each other and the way in which we view the world and the way in which we view people who should be our neighbors and should be, you know, fellow common you know, participants in the one race, which is the human race. But we have these ethnicities and we have, you know, racism and we have diversity, which tends to draw us apart from each other because of that brokenness. And so to establish that, hey, we live in a broken and a fallen world and we must actively fight against that brokenness, push back that darkness with the light. I think these are just examples of the world's brokenness, right? The fact that the world the world can recognize sometimes more than Christians that there's something wrong with the way we view each other. And that shouldn't be the case. Like we have all the equipment to properly handle difficult issues like the way we perceive our bodies and our facial features and our consciousness and our heritage and where we come from and, and mass incarceration and all these other things outside of, of other things like, um, you know, just justification and sanctification and, and the core tenets of the faith and the solas, right? We, we have all the equipment to properly handle all these issues, to properly address all these issues. And we're straining towards that time when the Lord will come and make all things right. But, you know, I, I just don't see why we can't recognize right now, currently, there's something wrong. But I do know we're pushing forward to the hope that Christ will come and make all things right to where we won't have to you know, obsess about our facial features and we won't have to worry and, and, and in fear about, you know, how we're being stigmatized by, by law enforcement or profiled. If we are, you know, we, we don't have to, we don't have to worry about that. We're, we're not worrying about disproportionate incarceration or, you know, the, the economics that may drive us into, to lower income areas. So 
I think it's important for us to constantly keep that hope. And it's, and it's sometimes difficult because you don't want to accept kind of this self-loathing, self-hate mentality that says blackness is inferior, even if you don't say it explicitly, you kind of say it implicitly. But you also want to keep in balance the fact that we do believe in the gospel and that in the gospel, even the people who disagree with us on, you know, cultural issues, if they believe in Christ, that's our brother, that's our sister. And we should bear with one another as we work towards something that neither of us have altogether. You know, nobody has has cornered the market on this. (laughs) You know, no one has cornered the market on not viewing each other in a way that is broken and fallen. So I think those are helpful reminders for us to keep to keep in the forefront of everything that we say and do. That's a word, brother. All right. Great. Well, this has been such a great conversation. And we just want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, it really helps us when you subscribe by iTunes or Satchel and when you, you rate us, when you review us. And uh, we're going to get to one of the reviews that a listener gave us. But before, I wanted to shout out one listener who's been talking a lot about us online, on Twitter, and that's David Reed. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at David Reed, R-E-E-D 82. And he did something that really warmed my heart. He's been listening the past couple of weeks to the podcast. And he said, I listened to the podcast. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. But I have all these questions now. I have these these things that that I'm still wondering about. And so I said, ask him. Let us know. We definitely want to answer those questions. If you have questions that that maybe are burning and maybe some follow-up comments, or maybe you don't understand something that we said, you can follow all of us online at Twitter, directly email us, um, or you can you can uh, tweet us as well. We'll DM you. We'll create a, a conversation forum. Um, this is not just a podcast for us to talk. This is meant to be a supplement that encourages the church, encourages local church pastors and lay people to work through these issues in a way that honors and glorifies God. So, And so I just want to let you guys know the questions that he asked were about the definition of two key terms. And if we had time, we would get into them and we break them down. But the two key terms that he wants questions, uh, he wants the question to be answered about and definition given for are systemic racism and white privilege. So you got to tune in next week to hear about our definitions of systemic racism, white privilege, whether or not those are effective terms, useful terms, or wise terms to use in the scope of Christian conversation. Ooh, so, I can't wait to get into that one. That's going to be yes. fun. Uh, so we, <laughs> we have a review, uh, Jamar, of someone who left us an iTunes review, and it was really encouraging for us. So so why don't you read that for us? Yeah, I love the title of the review. It says, I'm not mad, and <laughs> five stars by D. Sheshi or Desheshi. And the person says, being in the context that I'm in right now, that is, in a predominantly Caucasian church in the state of Alabama, I encounter prejudices daily. These obstacles aren't only from outside the church, but also within the body. I encounter individuals who have allowed their prejudice and stereotypes to determine who they show the love of Christ to. As someone of, as somewhat of a leader in my local context, I've been championing a change of thought, which has brought about significant opposition. In all this, I found myself doubting myself and what I believed was the right approach to ministering cross-culturally. However, the Lord brought, to the, brought me to this podcast and to other church leaders that had come to the same conclusion. God used this podcast to tell me, you are not mad for coming to the conclusions you have. 
Wow. Man, that's so encouraging. <laughs> Very encouraging. And that's exactly oh, why we're here. That's why RAN Network is here. Is we want to form a community, even if it's a virtual community of like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ, primarily focused on the issues and concerns of African Americans, but, but open to all and hopefully can be an encouragement. So we really appreciate that review. We encourage you all to leave reviews. Uh, let us know what what past the mic has has helped you understand, what is bringing to light, what questions you have, ways we could improve, all of that good stuff. Go to iTunes and leave us a review. Thank you guys so much for joining us, Jamar. I can't wait for the next episode, man. I'm already anticipating it. This has been such notes. a good conversation. I appreciate your wisdom, brother. Likewise. Take care. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.